Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each interview on this podcast begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life, YouTube celebrities, historians, to my next-door neighbor. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery, fueled by an unrelenting need to know more. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode note. I'd like to take a moment to share with you what DigPod of Great Britain had to say about armchair historians. Just utterly delightful. This is such an understated, delicate, and downright delightful podcast. The subjects covered are engaging, and the rapport between host and guest elevates the whole listening experience. Take note of this one. That was DigPod's review left via Apple Podcasts. Wherever you listen to Armchair Historians, be sure to subscribe, like, and review wherever possible. I love living in this small town in the Colorado Rockies. Some of the things I love most include the historic landscape, being surrounded by breathtaking vistas, but most of all, the people. The people who live and visit here are some of the most interesting I've met in all my travels. My guest today is one such person. I met Ruth, a resident of the National Historic Landmark District in which I live, around five years ago at a wine and cheese reception for the museum I was working for at the time. One of the first things we discussed was travel, a topic and experience we are both passionate about, and a topic which has preoccupied many of our conversations over the course of our friendship, which found footing in that first one. Over the years, I've learned that Ruth is a brilliant writer, that she's lived in four different countries, been to all but one continent, and has visited over 50 countries. Today, Ruth shares with us a more recent history about a natural disaster which directly affected her life. Ruth Rosenfeld, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure exactly what you're going to talk about. I think it has something to do with Japan because I know how much you love that topic. So I'm going to just, we'll go off to the races and I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? This history is not old history. It's relatively modern. I lived in Japan for three years and During the period that I lived there, around the time that I was ready to leave, uh, there was the huge earthquake and tsunami. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 2011. So that's what I would be talking about today. Okay. So that is very recent. It's history nonetheless. So this is going to be an amazing topic because you were there. Yes. Let me talk about the disaster first, and then I can talk about where I was. Actually, I lived west of Tokyo, about a half an hour west of Tokyo. So I wasn't in the thick of everything, but I certainly was affected by it. 
So first there was the disaster, the 9.0 earthquake, which is stronger than anything that's been recorded in the last hundred years. Wow. And after that, that caused the tsunami. That led to the damage. They both led to the damage at Fukushima, which was the nuclear power plant, Fukushima Daiichi, that was affected. There was a lot of pieces to this. There was a fear afterwards that the whole nuclear power plant would blow, which I don't think was something that people could see internationally, but was very much felt by the people who were living there then. And then there's the effect that it had on my Japanese friends and their lives, um, even years later. So you were living in Japan at the time. Yes, I had kind of a change of life in my 50s. I, my husband died, my kids were gone, and I went and taught in three different countries for eight years. And Japan was the last one. I was there for three years. And actually, I went back a few years later and did another semester. I was teaching at a university there. And uh, I... I took off that semester. That was that was going to be my last few months in Japan. I had a, an apartment and the lease was up in the middle of the summer. So I was planning to be there through the summer. And I, I did well enough. I had a little bit of savings that I just thought, I'm going, not going to teach this last semester. I'm going to do a little traveling. I'm going to do some writing. I was uh, in my little teeny little Japanese apartment sitting and typing on my computer, uh, uh, writing on my laptop. Do you remember what you were typing at that moment? I have been working on a book of about my story living in the three countries. Yeah, I was working on my book and I'm not sure what, what piece I was working on at the time. I had you know those Japanese doors that have small panes, and usually you see them with paper. Yeah. Uh, but I had one in my apartment that had glass panes, and it would, you know, pull uh, from the living room and, and separate it from the entry. Uh, and at times it would kind of make a little noise if there was, and there were always mild earthquakes and there were storms and such, but it started rattling louder and stronger than I had ever had happened before. And I knew that this was a was an earthquake. And what you're told when you live in lands that have earthquakes is to stand in the doorway, the door jam somewhere in your place that would be the, the strongest place that would be less likely to be affected. So I jumped up and stood in the door jam of the bathroom. And behind me in the bathroom, the medicine cabinet opened and things were bouncing all over the place and banging. And I thought, uh-oh. And I could hardly, you know, everything was shaking. It affects your vision and everything. So I, I, took one big step into my living room and grabbed my laptop and purse and ran out the door. I was on the second floor and I ran into the street and there were a few neighbors around and everybody was just standing there 
kind of in circles looking up and the shaking went on for five minutes and Holy that is not an exaggeration the um you could feel the sidewalk rippling underneath your feet wow and I was a little ways from the downtown area in the town that I lived in, and I could see we could see the um, the tall buildings go like this. And the Japanese are very careful about structure of their buildings to withstand uh, earthquakes. So nothing toppled or fell. But later on, we heard that there was a lot of damage inside because they were just, you know. Well, I could imagine if your apartment had the uh, medicine cabinet throwing things out at you that what was going on inside of other buildings. Right. So how far were you from the epicenter? I was actually 25 minutes west of Tokyo by train. And the epicenter was east off the coast of Sendai, which is a city that is northeast, a little north and on the coast. I was quite a distance away. So what happened was the earthquake came first and the earthquake caused the tsunami and the villages along that eastern that northeastern coast had just had this massive earthquake uh, people were trying to get out the roads were damaged vehicles were damaged some people were looking for other family members and Basically, very few people had time to get out of town before the the, um, tsunami came. The tsunami was estimated at about 15 meters high, which is almost 50 feet. Wow. It's enormous. I, I was obsessively watching videos and things afterwards, and there was one where some people were on top of a building and I don't know whether, I think it was the fourth floor and they were videoing it and it just kept coming. The water just kept coming and you don't see it like waves. It just kind of floats in and just keeps coming and covered everything. And soon that, that building was the only thing sticking up. There were cars floating by and all kinds of things. One of the, Really interesting things that I read and uh, heard was that some of those villages had a sign up the hill from the village that said, don't build past this point. And nobody knew what it meant. It was from so long ago that obviously there had been a tsunami of that magnitude at some point and people who were alive at the time uh, erected that to, to warn people, but nobody paid any attention. I think there was one village that, that survived because they had built up the hill from one of those signs. There's still a lot of people who are displaced and not going back to those villages because 19,000 people wow. dead or unaccounted for. They never found the, the bodies. And then at the same time, the Fukushima power plant, the nuclear power plant, you know, the Japanese government had thought that they should build these power plants in areas where they were somewhat depressed or poor, would give people jobs. So it was not the best placement, it was it was close enough to the ocean to be affected by it. And initially, 
there was damage to the power plant from the earthquake and the cooling system went out. Then the tsunami came. So it was like a double whammy and they never planned for that. I think if they had one or the other, they would have been able to compensate, but they had never planned for that magnitude of a disaster. So you were able to go back into your flat? Yes, I was able to go back. And at the time, I hung around with some Japanese friends at a jazz club. I had one friend who who texted me with warnings, do this, do that, <laughs> but wear a mask when you go outside. Because what happened was initially at Fukushima, they would let off steam to try to reduce the pressure. There was meltdown. They were trying to produce, reduce the pressure and that stuff is going out in the air and you're paying attention to, to which way the wind is going. Is it coming over this way? You know, how far were you from the power plant? Oh, I was pretty far from the power plant, but now it's all in the air. It's, it's Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So pretty far. What does that mean? Well, I was west of Tokyo and it was north of Tokyo. It would have been quite a few hours to travel up there. We were terrified that we'd be carrying, carrying uh, radiation uh, over the city, you know? We couldn't even imagine. Uh, were you now were you kicking yourself for making the decision to stay? No, no. No. In fact, I didn't even think about leaving initially. I had friend Japanese friends who encouraged me and some of them said I would leave if I could. Where can I go, you know? But why stay here, you know? I we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, I went to the jazz club and I can remember sitting there and there was an aftershock. There was a lot of aftershocks. And this one was pretty strong. And things were swaying. The, the, there were hanging lamps and they were, they were swaying. And everybody stood up and everybody was trying to decide whether to run out again. And, and then it settled down. And people got on the phone and they called somebody they knew. Uh, they, oh, somebody checked on their phone to see where the aftershock center was. And somebody called uh, a friend there and, and to see if, if it was okay, if they were okay. You know, it was just, we were all on pins and needles. There were people at the jazz club, friends of mine, who knew people who were telling stories about, one had elderly parents that lived in Iwate, which is one of these areas on the coast, but they lived up the hill and they were okay, but they had no power and they probably had no power for a long time. People were talking about it. people that they knew were infected in one way. There were there was somebody uh, there was somebody that somebody knew um, who worked at Fukushima, but happened to be off that week visiting their family someplace else. And then there was another guy who went back to work at Fukushima, and nobody had heard from him since. So people had to go in to this um, situation and try and stabilize it. So one of the things that happened was they shut down all the power plants. And Japan is an island, and they were quite dependent on nuclear power because they didn't have a lot of other sources. So they shut all the nuclear power plants down until they could- Just to be safe. Right. And- they set up a blackout schedule and a friend's 
son called me to translate. <laughs> they would be um, having trucks go through the, the streets with loudspeakers uh, telling you what in your neighborhood, here's this, that, you know, here are the rules. So I had some people to help me. So you, did, you, didn't, you don't speak Japanese. I speak some Japanese, but beginning conversations, you know, where I live and I work and where I'm from. And then usually the people who, and I took some Japanese classes, but the people who are not older than me or younger have studied it in school and their English is so much better. They can communicate and understand subtleties. And, and I, you know, I'm like an idiot in Japanese, you know. So um, what were you teaching there then if you I didn't was speak English? You yeah. were teaching English. Teaching English. It was an extracurricular program at a university. I taught at a women's university for three years and then another university, uh, a co-ed university um, that was a, a really good school in uh, Tokyo for half a year when I went back the second time. Uh, but it was it, it was a conversation-based curriculum. So we would engage them in conversation and then try and get them talking to each other using the vocabulary and grammar that we were learning. It was mm -hmm. great fun. And, and, and it's a good way to get to know people is teaching yeah. conversational English. <laughs> Well, you are one of my most adventurous friends. I have to say that. <laughs> and that the thought of that in a place so foreign to me, the thought of it is I don't have the courage to do that. I'll go to England because they speak a version of English, but you're a brave but soul I, is what I'm trying to say. I enjoy learning about different cultures and meeting people, learning about their lives. And, you know, when I first started out doing this, I my first job was at an American school in Guatemala City. And, you know, I pretty much hung out with the expats there. And little by little, I became more uh, immersed in the different countries that I lived in and got to know people and didn't hang around with the Americans <laughs> because you get What's yourself into Why trouble. go? And, yeah. Right. 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 So how long were you uh, there for? I was in, in Japan, Japan for three years. Yeah, three years. And then I went back about a, two years later for another half a year semester. After the earthquake. Right. Actually, when the earthquake happened, a little while after the, the following week, um, a good friend of mine who was the director of the school that I taught him in Guatemala was there visiting her family because her daughter married a guy who was with an international company and they were in Tokyo for a few years and we had planned to get together and her family left and she had a, a flight on Thursday and we talked we were gonna we talked earlier in the week and she said um you have to make a plan you have to make a plan what are you gonna do and I ended up getting a flight for the same day so we could travel to the airport together. This happened March 11th, so that was a little bit further into March, and I went back to the States for a month, and then I had planned um, a trip in May anyway, so I went ahead and did that. I met my son, and we did China. You went to China. <laughs> and, um, and then I went back to, to Japan, and 
stayed until my lease was out, and I was glad to see my friends again and see everything. So okay. you went back to Japan. Okay, I'm trying to get the timeline here. So, so you about a month and a half or so later, later, a uh, couple of months later. And, and how long was your lease after that? Um, it was in the middle of the summer. So you stayed so there another couple months. Yeah. yeah. And they still had the blackouts. And one of the things that really worried me was that just west of where Fukushima was, was the biggest farm belt where the vegetables came from. I was terrified to be buying fresh fruits and vegetables from that area. And my, my friends, my Japanese friends, had different points of view about it. Uh, one said, they're telling us it's okay, but they're lying. But the government would play down the risk from the power plant and how much radiation was in the air, and it's not enough to, to be harmful. People really didn't believe it. I had one friend who said, it's not an issue, but we have to be careful of the children because you could have more buildup through your life. So did they determine that there was radiation in the air? Or? Oh, yeah. Not where I was, but, you know, in that area. They, and it was all over the place. Those villages that were affected, that whole area was sealed off. There are a few people, I've seen videos of a few older people who lived there, and that was their home and their lives, and they decided to go back and take care of their animals and but there's almost nobody there. You know, it's it's still very much affected. Pretty Why did you go back? Why did you decide to go back? Well, the power plant didn't blow. <laughs> I have I had my life there. You know, I had my life there for years. I had my stuff there. I had my friends there, and I didn't want to just disappear. And leave everything, you know, I had commitments and and I'm glad I went back. I have to say, though, that when I got on the plane, this is this is how scary it was at the time uh, when I was going to the airport with my friend. I sent a text to one of my Japanese friends who had organized a, a goodbye night for me at the jazz club with people coming. And I emailed them or texted and, and thanked her. And the text that she sent back to me said, if Tokyo is left, we will meet again. Oh. That's how scared everybody was. <laughs> wow. But I wanted to go back. And I was relieved, actually, that I had planned to leave that summer anyway. So that kind of worked out timing-wise pretty well. And I was glad that I wasn't teaching because I wouldn't have been able to leave. It was um, it was quite an experience. And, you know, just last month in October, they they have been TEPCO, which is the company that, that runs the energy systems. They have a new president in Japan. Abe uh, is, is out and Suga is, is the new president. And Suga announced that TEPCO would begin taking all the contaminated water that they have been storing. They're, they're still cooling the reactors and will be for a long, long time uh, with ocean water, but they have to store then the contaminated water. 
that's passed through there. They announced that they were going to start releasing it into the ocean. They announced this last month in October. That doesn't sound like a very good idea. No, there was, they have changed their minds since then. They've rescinded that. But the fishermen, there's a big fishing industry in Japan, and they were terrified that their livelihood would be killed. And environmental groups spoke up and protested. So they rescinded that. So I don't know what they're going to do with all that water at that point. It's radiation, right? Yeah. Doesn't that stick around like forever? Yeah. Because I just did, I'm thinking about that because I, I don't know if you listened to it, but I just did an episode about the Radium Girls. Oh, yes, I did. Yes. The hosts of uh, Mystery History Podcast, I interviewed Jordan and Allie. I just remembered that was a thing, you know? And so it's like, what happens? What happens to the, And where are they storing it? Somewhere on the grounds there, but I do recall hearing that last month and being been pretty freaked out that they were going to do that. Uh, but, you know, then Japanese government does those kinds of things. They announce something and then they say, oh, no, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. Don't worry. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's Do you think they do it anyways? Do you think they would no, do it? No. no. I think that it would be pretty obvious if they did something. Okay. You know, it's being monitored. But it's all interesting. So when I went back a year and a half, two years later, they still had a blackout schedule. They still had some rules about and guidelines that you don't you don't keep your air conditioning in the summer. In the summer it's horribly hot and humid. That you don't keep it seventy, you know, you keep it at whatever, 90, (laughs) so that it it doesn't come on quite that much. I think they have activated a few of the um, nuclear power plants around the country, but I'd have to check that. I know that when I was there, they were talking about opening one that was on the southern uh, coast, and people were just up in arms. And I joined a protest in downtown Tokyo. Did you write uh, your sign in Japanese? No, I didn't do a sign. You know, when I go to these things, I run around with my camera and take pictures of everybody else. Oh, that's right. Of course you do. And it was so different from a protest here. You know, they had the police clearing the streets for them and escorting them. And <laughs> it was quite amazing. Do they chant? Yeah, they chanted and and they had signs in both Japanese and some in English. No nukes, no nukes. And they had music, you know, uh, they had some bands on, on trucks. And, they, and we went through that, you know, if you've seen pictures of the biggest intersection in the world with all of these uh, zebra-striped, you know, the um, lines and people are going every which way in this huge, huge intersection. That's Shibuya crossing. And we, we marched through Shibuya crossing and they stopped all the traffic. It was um, it was a good thing to be a part of. When these natural. type of natural disasters happen, there's so many different stories or any, you know, any kind of big tragedy that affects a large area. Uh, with lots of people and communities, there's always that one story. That one story that sticks out 
in your mind. You know, I heard this from people like, you know, my dad was, he was a cab driver. And when Kennedy was shot, he was driving one of the, um, a politician, an important national politician in Cleveland, you know? And so there was that story. Right. Do you have and a story when, like that about this? Well, I, I told you my story of where I was. And those are things that when you hear about something or when something happens, you are very much rooted in the place and, and what was happening at the time. Um, I I did kind of compulsively watch a lot of videos about people uh, and their stories. I remember one woman who lived in one of the villages that was destroyed, and she was still living in what looked like a little closet years later because she didn't know where to go. You know, she didn't have family elsewhere. Her family was gone, and she she didn't know what to do. You know, I, you just feel so badly. The guy who went back, I just saw that pretty recently, who went back to his village to take care of the animals, because there were all kinds of animals roaming, roaming around, who knows if they had some harm done to them. But by the radiation, but he fed the animals and cared for them and said, you know, this is something he can do. This is where he's always lived. Those are the stories that, that really touched me, I think. So when you went back a year later after you, you went back for a couple months when and finished out your lease and said goodbye to your friends and packed up all your things and you came right. back home. Did you know that you were going to be the, going there in a year? Or did you just decide you were going back? Well, you know, I was turning 60 that year. I spent my 50s traveling. I've still done a lot of travels after. I had rented out my house for eight years. A couple of different families living in the house at different times. And they paid off my mortgage for me. Okay. So I could come home and I gave them a few months notice. I could come home and I didn't have to work so much. It was a good situation. But I came home and was working on my book and realized that what I really wanted to do was go back and visit the places that I lived and connect with the people there again and see what it was like now. So I went back to Guatemala. And then I was in the Czech Republic for two years. So I went back to Prague. Then I wanted to go back to uh, Japan. And the uh, the company that I worked for, I, I taught at universities, but I actually was employed by um, a company that um, places you in these jobs. So I thought, you know, that might be the easiest way to go back and visit is to do it another semester. And, when you went back to Japan, did you go back to the same place? I was close. I was two towns over or two train stops over and I could walk it in a half an hour. So I could still be in that area and, and see my friends. And then you came back to the U.S. and lived yeah. in your house? Yeah. Okay. And, and that's when here. I met you. And that's when I met <laughs> that's you. That's right. And I, I was like, who is this woman living in Japan and telling me all these <laughs> crazy stories about traveling? You are very soft-spoken. And every time you tell me a new story like this, I did not understand the extent of this and how you were so immersed in this, this earthquake and tsunami situation. So I'm always flabbergasted by you and 
Well, I've thank learned you. a lot from you. I've, I, I have. I've learned a lot from you about being independent and about figuring out how to make things happen, being resourceful. And when I moved here, I, I have that same wonderless that you do. I mean, it's a different version of it, but you know, I lived in England for three months. That was my big right, right. No, overseas adventure. And I was traveling a lot and then I moved here and I didn't travel for a very long time. And you would always tell me about these new adventures you had coming up. And <laughs> you, even though you maybe weren't traveling as much or living for extended periods, you were, you always have the right now is a little different, but you always have right, but- uh, an adventure on your horizon. Or right. You, and I had a couple plans this year, but, you know, obviously they're not going to happen. But, yeah, I'm always looking for something new and interesting to do. And and I volunteered for places like Habitat and volunteer English speaking, a couple of volunteer English speaking groups in Europe. And usually I can I can do a week of something useful and then do some traveling around. And, and I look for those opportunities. That's good. It's so good. is there anything else about the earthquake and tsunami that you haven't talked about that you wanted to? I did want to mention that when I was worried about the farming area and the fresh foods when I when I went back that second time, you know, it still hadn't seemed to have changed all that much. So I ended up buying a lot of packaged foods and imported foods. And I had some, you know, native Japanese foods, but they probably laughed at me because they were living there and they had to do what they had to do, you know, yeah. but, you know, you kind of do what your comfort level tells you. Right, right. Do we see this history anywhere in pop culture? Is there a movie? You know, I did just watch a documentary. I think it was uh, Unsolved Mysteries. It's a new version of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what this is. This one was about. And it's about, and I know you don't believe in this stuff, so, but I'll keep it short. Okay. <laughs> but it, it is a documentary and I'll put the information in the episode notes. And it was about all the paranormal ghost sightings of people uh, who supposedly, it was really interestingly done too. It was different uh, that there were all these spirits that didn't realize that they were no longer uh, alive. Uh, and these oh, stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one for you, and it is a book that I absolutely love. It's a few years old, and it's called A Tale for the Time Being, and it's by Ruth Ozeki, O-Z-E-K-I. Okay. And obviously, she's of Japanese origin, or her family. It's the story of two women. One woman is Canadian woman living on the west coast of Canada and British Columbia. She finds on the beach a package, and it's a journal wrapped in plastic so it wasn't ruined in the ocean. Is this a true story? No. It's a novel, okay. But it's a novel. But she's reading... The journal. So the the other part of the story is a young girl in Japan who is writing this journal and her life there. And it it's beautiful and it's so indicative of Japanese culture. There's a little magical realism in it, 
It's a lovely story, and it is definitely a story about that because the girl was writing this before, and the woman is finding it after and knew what happened in Japan. And there's all this stuff that has washed up, uh, which is, you know, historically true on the Western beaches. Wow, that's interesting. So that is a fact that there was a lot of things that washed up from the natural disaster in Canada on the West Coast. Canada and Northern California, I think, as well. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to do a little um, research about what all was found and what kinds of things they were able to realize from some of those artifacts, you know, people who try to escape on boats and things. I want you to tell our listeners more about you and who you are and the book that you're writing. All right. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in high school during the Newark race riot. So I can really relate to a lot of the things that people are feeling now in those kinds of racially tense situations. I went to college in the East. I was living in Newark. I was an art student, and I was a half an hour from Manhattan. So I spent a lot of time going into New York City to art museums and galleries and things. That was in the late 60s, early 70s. It was a great time to hang around New York City. And then in my senior year of college, I had a, a pottery shop in New York State with some friends, some fellow potters. And then I left and traveled around the country and ended up coming to Colorado. What year was that? that? 72. Okay. And I lived in Denver for almost 20 years. And then um, I was in my second marriage with a kid and a stepson, and we moved up to the mountains. And I'm in this little town where I met you. Georgetown, Colorado. Right, Georgetown, Colorado. Charming little town, but it's close enough to Denver to to still get a city fix once in a while. Right. Not really yeah. during the pandemic, but uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. <laughs> no, it's a good place to be, and it's a wonderful community. So I've been involved in a lot of voluntary stuff. So you were married. You had a son. Yeah, my and husband died. My your second husband, husband died. died. Okay, Canceled. George. Uh, yeah. And he was uh, young. You know, he was 51. I was 45 at the time. You've told me this before, so that must have been very devastating. But you always have said that he was the love of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a first marriage, and we were good friends, but it, it wasn't the same. And uh, we drifted apart after a while. and. So he was the father, um, George, who uh, passed away of uh, cancer in the 90s. He was the father father of of my son, Adam. Mm -hmm. And Adam was how old when he passed away? Adam was 12. Okay. Once Adam went to college, I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself? Wait, 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 wait. wait. You need to back up. You need to back up because I want you to tell your whole story that I know. So... (laughs) So what what was one of the things that you and your son did? How did you connect with your son? You know what I'm trying to say. So what did you guys do? Well, it was just the two of us. It was an interesting time because he was an adolescent. He was a preteen. And this is the time of life that you start 
arguing with your parents and you don't want to be around them and stuff. But we bonded. We bonded. We played games at night. We watched movies. We went and we started traveling. I took them and we started taking trips. First to visit people we knew and then to just explore different places to Europe and Costa Rica. We just did some different um, travels and he loved the traveling. He's often come and traveled with me in various places in his adult Well, life. since I've known you, you've gone on quite a few trips with your adult son. So yes. that that is an unusual story, especially for an adolescent yeah. to yeah. bond in that way. And so what were some of the um, trips that you guys went on overseas? Oh, we did a backpacking trip. No, we did um, Spain and Italy. We did take a train through southern France and stop at Nice. We did some time doing that. We have since done Iceland, uh, Ireland, Mediterranean. You uh, have this look on your face like you're talking about what you ate for dinner or something. I'm just telling you from my point of view, that's, that is so amazing and that you were able to give him that. You know, we, we relate as, as adults. I've never treated him like a little kid, you know. I what think. a world you opened up to him. I mean, I could not imagine having such, you know, a cool mom that, that just like looked at the world the way you did and took me to all these places. That was a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing that you did with your son. Well, you know, these things never would have happened if we hadn't had the earlier tragedies. My yeah. my parents died soon after my husband, oddly enough, and uh, suddenly I didn't have anything to keep me. So uh, I thought, I've always wanted to travel. Let's go explore the world. Yeah. Well, see, a lot of people uh, would have thought otherwise. Well, I do. I have the sun, so I can't travel. But you didn't let that be an obstacle you looked at as an opportunity and it right. was right you're an exceptional person because i don't know anybody who's ever done the things that you've done in the ways that you've done them then after adam went away to school you continued traveling you found bigger longer opportunities because of course you probably couldn't do a lot of that before because he was in school Right. And, and like I said, my job situation was changing and I just needed, I needed to change. I needed to do something different. I knew I needed a new, a new challenge in my life. And it was a new episode. When did you actually start writing the book about your traveling? Oh, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. I journaled pretty extensively while I was living in those countries. And Right off the bat, I decided I had a I had a website. You know, I had been a computer geek. I had a website, and I started posting photos and stories. And I realized this was a great way to keep in touch with people because my friends back home would comment, and you know, otherwise I wouldn't hear from them. And I did that through the whole time. My journaling was often included more personal stories about people that I didn't post. I just posted the travel stories. So I just recently started a new website uh, last fall and blog. I'm pulling up some of those older stories. So you have a, an amazing blog. What's it called? I guess it's called Musings from the Colorado Mountains because that's where I'm coming from now. I've always used RR on the road. So that's kind of my handle. 
It's always an interesting. So, how would you describe what you write about? Well, I suppose you could call it a travel memoir, but it's it's much more in depth than most travelers that just breeze through a place and meet a person or two. But I've stayed there long enough to make friendships and learn about the culture. And really, in each place, in each of the three countries, I became more and more involved with the people and the culture. It's much more in-depth than travel stories that you generally find. Do you have a title? Yes, it's Go Wherever You Want. When I told my son what I was going to be doing, I was going to this job fair to find an international teaching job. I took him out to dinner and I told him all this, and he was in college, but he wasn't that far away. He wasn't living at home anymore. He thought about it, and he said, go wherever you want. Just send me a ticket. (laughs) So that's where the title comes from. Did he come and visit you when you lived in Japan? He came to each place. He's the only person who came to visit me in each place, so he had some understanding of what my life was in each of those and some of the people that I was friends with and came exploring with me around the countries. That's nice. Yeah, that's really nice. I guess one of the things I want to know is why did you pick the history you picked and what is it that you want people to know about that? Like, what's the most important thing about that history that you want them to know? Well, I have to say that I'm not much of an amateur historian. I'm not someone who reads a lot of historical novels and has a lot of knowledge about different times in history. This was something that I experienced. So it's something that I I know about and I can talk about. I think, you know, when disasters like this, when natural disasters like this happen, you know, in Guatemala, they would have mudslides sometimes that would, and they just had one uh, that wiped out villages. And horrible things happen and people need help and it upends everything and we all go through our normal lives and say oh gee that's too bad but when you come into contact with it it touches you in a way that that it's hard to imagine other people can understand but Japanese are resilient people and for the most part they've they've done quite well to leave it behind it's still a part of who they are now it's Absolutely. Yeah. It's part of of who they are. Everybody has a story about that event. Everybody was touched by it. Right. And there's a sorrow that they live with. There's a grief that they live with when you go through anything, whether it's a personal tragedy or, you know, we've got fires here in Colorado and people who are displaced, whose houses burned or were at least had to evacuate for a while. And, Things happen all over the place. It's uh, It becomes part of your who you are and your right. understanding of other people who are going Well, and in a way, it's become a part of who you are, that experience. That's true. That's true. And I do think about it. Yeah. I think we touched on a lot. <laughs> what is, okay, your website? Oh, it's ruthrosenfeld.com. RuthRosenfeld.com. Okay, I'll put a link in the episode notes. Yeah, and the blog is one of the menu choices. And the book is, we're not sure when that's coming out. 
but the book is done. I am hoping I, I'm reluctant to self-publish. I would like to find uh, a publisher to pick it up. So I am in the process of seeking an agent. We'll see how that goes. Well, if you're a traveler and you love to travel, you can't travel now, check out RuthRosenfeld.com, read her blog, because you'll feel like you're there. She's a brilliant writer. So Ruth, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Anne-Marie. This has been a lot of fun to to talk about. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks. There you have it. That was Ruth Rosenfeld. To find out more about Ruth and about the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that hit Japan, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.